Thanks for joining us again at the Canadian Breakpoint, a Canadian infectious diseases podcast by Canadian infectious diseases physicians. I'm Summer Stewart, here with Dr. Rupina Pierwal, Pediatric Infectious Diseases Specialist from Saskatoon. For this episode, we welcome Dr. Rachel Dwillow, Pediatric Infectious Diseases Specialist from Winnipeg, to discuss the current landscape of tuberculosis in Canada. Dr. Pierwal. All right, welcome everyone to another episode of our podcast at the Canadian Breakpoint. So today we have a very special guest with us, Dr. Duello. So I would like to welcome Dr. Duello. Dr. Duello is a fellow of the Canadian Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons in general pediatrics and pediatric infectious diseases. Following her infectious disease fellowship training, she completed additional training in pediatric tuberculosis at the University of Stellenbosch in Cape Town, South Africa. She has worked extensively with TB affected populations in remote, low resource settings. Her current roles at the university include clinical lead for pediatric TB services, medical lead for the Winnipeg Regional Health Authority TB program, and the TB consultant for the Kivalek region of Nunavut, Canada. She's the lead author of the pediatrics chapter in the most recent edition of the Canadian TB Standards. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. I usually go by Dr. Rachel or Rachel, so <laughs> Dr. Right. Rachel seems too formal. <laughs> <laughs> totally fine. We'll go with Rachel or Dr. Rachel today. Yep. Yeah. Perfect. All right. Well, a little bit of a disclaimer. So obviously, Dr. Rachel was my attending physician in fellowship as well. So uh, we've worked uh, closely together. Um, We've had some TB discussions, but I think things are a little bit different in Canada, for sure, and around the world. So why don't we start off by talking a little bit about the current situation of TB in Canada, just for our listeners to have an overview of you know, what's changed, where are the outbreaks like, and what's going on in your world? Yeah, so, you know, I come from a Manitoba Nunavut perspective, so um, I don't know what's going on actively in other provinces over the last couple of years, but I can say um, certainly um, in the standards that the first chapter definitely does a nice job of describing uh, the situation um, up until about 2000. Um, and so Canada is really quite um, obviously the Canadian population on a general basis. It's um, considered um, a low incidence setting for TB. Um, so we've been like fairly stagnant around five per 100,000 cases, the incidence rate. But again, you know, that doesn't describe the entire picture, as I'm sure you know, uh, having spent some time here in Manitoba. And, you know, there's it's heterogeneous across Canada as to who's affected, but the general population groups um, at highest risk um, that we've seen in terms of uh, what our epi data um, tells us is that this is a disease in Canada, those who are foreign born or have foreign born relatives or live in the houses of foreign born people. Um, And specifically um, as the data shows um, higher risk from uh, from the South Asia region, which makes sense, high burden countries there, as well as the African region. Again, also not surprising, I think, for anyone that's done any work in the areas. Right. And then Indigenous. And so Indigenous includes both Inuit, First Nations, and Métis. Um, and so depending where you are on the country, you actually get a really different patient population. So 
my population is very different um, in terms of who is affected than say in Ontario or say in BC versus Nunavut. So um, again, it depends where you are in the country. I know um, at least in Manitoba over the last couple of years, COVID did, there was a decrease in case count um, definitely while COVID was happening. As to the reason why, I don't know. Um, I don't know if we actually know or have data on that. But uh, this year, it's come back with a vengeance. Um, we're getting late cases. We're having more cases. And there are concerns um, with certain communities that, again, I won't name them, but um, they're definitely struggling right now. And I would say globally, that's been the case, too. We saw cases go down. Um, deaths go up from TB. So I think probably this is just a trend of what's happened with COVID and a lot of other diseases as well. I agree. Yeah. So I guess for timing wise, I mean, the new um, edition for Canadian TB standards came out just in May here. So I think timing wise, I think it's uh, very pertinent information and actually reviewing the guidelines myself uh, came across a lot of changes that I might not have been aware of previously. Mm -hmm. And so I think in general, um, just kind of discussion around, like, was there um, a reasoning behind the new release or um, was it just, you know, time due um, for, for this to come out? Um, you know, I don't entirely know. I was a later addition to the group. Um, I know they had tried to do it right around the time COVID started, um, I think. And so it's Dick Menzies that leads the, leads yeah. the whole group. Um, I think they had an, um, I think his goal was to update it every five years, mm. but obviously I guess that didn't happen. It's a lot of work to do something like this. So Definitely. I think it was just, it was on, it was on his plate, but on the back burner. And then he had some time and it was time to pull the trigger on it. So, and again, there's been a lot of changes as, as are reflected there in terms of treatment and diagnostics. So. Um, again, it was very timely and, and probably overdue as well. Right. All right. So kind of, I guess, digging right into the guidelines, because most of our listeners, um, we've actually had a lot of requests for this episode. Oh, okay. um, yeah. And so <laughs> I know, which is good. I um, like it when people are interested in this. So that's great. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's because clinicians are seeing a lot of tuberculosis in their communities. And, you know, our listeners are, they're international, but we do have a lot of um, listeners from North America and especially in smaller communities where you're going to see outbreaks, um, you know, things like presentation, right? So maybe we can mm. talk a little bit about, because I know in the guideline, that was a recent um, addition as well, kind of comparing how like children may present very different, different from kind of our typical adult presentation that we see yeah. of tuberculosis. So why don't we touch on a little bit about that? And then you can give us an overall kind of overview as to an outsider from my standpoint, like what should I be looking in the guidelines and what are the yeah. newest things? Yeah. So again, you know, those of us who've studied pediatrics, children aren't little adults, as we all know. And, and again, manifest things mm, very differently. I think the younger the, of the child, so an infant is very different than say a teenager with TB. So I would say the more adult type symptoms, which are fever, weight loss, hemoptysis, um, prolonged cough, night sweats. Um, you, you do see that in the more I would say teen to preteen as to the age cutoff, like there's no hard minimum age for that. Yeah. 
So, but if you, when you get into the infants, the big thing is, um, I would say to focus on is the EpiLink or EpiContact. Um, so when I see um, an infant and I'm thinking about TB, like who do they live with? Who are they exposed to? Do they fall into one of the risk groups that we know has a higher incidence in Canada? So again, recent, uh, recently immigrated to Canada from a high burden country um, or one of our um, indigenous populations, again, not all are affected equally in Canada and definitely um, it depends which region you're from. Yes. So when I think of the EpiLink, then again, we also use the TST or the IGRA, depending on the age. Um, again, it's not to diagnose TB disease. So TB, um, when you're sick with TB, it's for um, TB infection. So when we're using that um, in terms of making a diagnosis of active TB in somebody, again, it doesn't tell me about TB disease. It tells me about immune response to um, tuberculosis antigens. And so then if my immune system or their immune system is responding, therefore that implies exposure, therefore that implies risk. Um, and that's how I like to think about it. So once those two things are thought about, um, then you move on to like clinical signs and symptoms. And again, I see a lot of kids with just hyalur disease or perihyalur disease, um, mediastinal disease, I should say. So mm -hmm. lymph nodes in the chest, which is very classic of pediatric TB. And actually a lot of times they're minimally symptomatic. Mm -hmm. um, but again, you know, you have to think about other things that cause that. Um, and so, you know, if you have that epilength, that to me is a diagnosis, I would say a child who's more sick. Um, so you always ask about the TB symptoms, but you start getting into things like lethargy and irritability. Um, and so weight loss or not interested in feeding, but not for short periods of time for long periods of time, like weeks. And that's often, often what I hear when they're quite sick and you see the x-ray and you're like, whoa, okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So def definitely a different presentation there. And then in terms of, so obviously that's a little bit of touching on the clinical presentation now kind of walking through. So you have that clinical presentation, mm -hmm. talked a little bit about the TST and IGRA. I know in the, in the recent guideline, it was mentioned kind of the age group cutoffs. Cause I get this yeah. a lot in my practice yeah. <laughs> where everybody will ask, you know, like what should I send both? Should I be sending TST and IGRA both? Or what is the, what, what should we really be telling experts out there? Yeah. So, um, I would say amongst our, our group in our chapter, so the, the pediatric clinicians, um, lots and lots of discussion around the IGRA and the minimum age range. Right. Um, and so Previous to this um, minimum age range, um, generally, you know, amongst my colleagues was five years, um, so five years and up for the IGRA. And the reason for that is um, the immune system hasn't adequately developed. Um, and as to when it's adequately developed within the first five years, um, that's hard to say, but, you know, a chance of a false negative and negative. Um, but there has been more evidence recently, and there's a really nice, I think it's a table in the chapter, talking about some of the studies where they use some large cohorts. Um, and 
um, some, some like better evidence, I would say, I'm not sure if it's the best, best evidence, um, but that the IGRIC can be used in, um, in uh, lower age groups than five. So yeah. pushing it down to around two um, is, is where we're at with that. So I would say, you know, for sure down to age five, for sure down to age two, um, with some caveats. Again, if you're an abnormal immune system, maybe not. Right. I don't think you necessarily need to do both, but I would say I would use it as well. Um, consider more strongly using it in those who are BCG vaccinated. Um, again, uh, the TSD obviously reacts to that. Um, so again, that's really also an emphasis. So BCG vaccinated should try and get an IGRA. Not the end of the world if you have a TST. Again, there's really good reasons to use a TST. Um, remote settings, because often the IGRA is not even available outside of bigger centers. So again, you know, TST is just fine and a good contact history and symptom history is also what you need. Okay. And then just touching a little bit more on the workup and then the real area I want to talk about is the management because I think a lot of the updates are around there. So sure. In terms yeah. of, um, so do you want to just walk us through maybe, so we have a patient who we're thinking we're suspecting mm. TB, um, you know, we would do the initial workup. So um, let's say, let's say it was somebody that you had high suspicion from clinical findings. Yeah. And so obviously as part of that, we talked about sending some of the diagnostic testing as well, mm-hmm. um, like mm-hmm. IGRA. And then what are, what are some of the additional um, yeah. management criteria that we should be using? So obviously initially it's a chest x-ray as well. Um, and really like TB clinicians who spend all their time doing TB are so anal about this. And I am so <laughs> anal about this is it's a good quality chest x-ray. So you want to get the, that is one of your best tools. And so because you're looking at the mediastinum, um, you really need to have a great straight on view, good inspiration, good penetration, any twisting or anything like that. Um, again, really affects what you're seeing. And, and again, I've seen a kid who had a bad x-ray, bad quality, as we would call, label it or how it's known. Mm-hmm. Then we brought him in, redid it, clearly TB disease. So again, um, really want to emphasize the importance of that and the importance of a good one. Yeah. Um, so there's that. Um, and again, because usually it's going to be pulmonary is the most common thing. So that's where you start. But again, you know, dictated on signs and symptoms. Um, so certainly if there's signs and symptoms outside of the respiratory system, obviously imaging for that. And then uh, sputum. But most of the time our kids can't cough on command like an adult. So we use um, different, different ways to do it. So I would say um, gastrics are really popular around Manitoba and because we also have blastomycosis here. So we use it for that. And um, so we send gastric aspirates after a period of being um, a fasting, I would say probably four hours or more. Yeah. Uh, first thing in the morning is ideal, but I wouldn't necessarily admit someone to hospital just to do it mm-hmm. um, or a prolonged hospitalization just to do it. Yeah. Um, and so uh, send those for AFB PCR if it's available uh, at least once, which we also really want. (laughs) Um, uh, We talk about that a little bit. Um, And that's talked about as well in the adult chapters. Um, And then uh, 
obviously um, smears and uh, cultures as well for AFB. And the gold standard again is usually an AFB culture or MTB complex on, on culture or, you know, um, PCR as well. Positive PCR with compatible symptoms is also very appropriate. Um, we also do touch upon a technique used in more lower resource settings of getting sputum induction on even on young kids. And I think that probably relies on the experience of the nursing staff or the RT or whoever's going to do it. Um, Because again, it has to be a good sample. Mm -hmm. So you can do it on babies, they do it on in South Africa and India on babies. So again, um, it depends on what you have and what resources you have. But again, you can do it. So you know, if you have that, and that's all you have, do it. Um, again, some sputum is better than none. But you know, um, a lot of this, a lot of pediatric TB is as again, as um, a lot of you may know, is is a clinical diagnosis, again, we're really unlikely to have a positive smear culture. So again, it's just a gestalt and epi history. And again, other surrogates like the TST or IGRA to make the diagnosis. Yeah. And I'm actually glad that you brought that up because there's a lot of times, I mean, obviously dealing with like being an infectious disease specialist myself, there's a lot of times when there's multiple things on your differential and Mm -hmm. I think reminding kind of the listeners as well, but what I do in my clinical practice as well is to remind them that like a negative culture or a negative smear doesn't rule Rule it out. Yes, definitely. And that's a huge thing because- Oh, and that's like, you know, it's hard for, sometimes I think that's challenging for people to wrap their head around, um, even, you know, here in our hospital. Um, yeah. Serial, serial follow-up is actually super useful too. So um, if, again, you're not sure the kid's healthy, there's minimal disease or whatever is going on in the chest, a follow-up four weeks later, that's okay. As long as they have a reliable caregiver. Right. Sometimes when I'm really on the fence, because again, treating someone for TB and especially young children is a very big deal. It's a lot of investment and resources. And so really good short-term follow-up again, can sometimes help clarify things with another x-ray. And again, if it's TB, it's going to be there. Um, So um, yeah, that's the approach I use when I'm on the fence. That's good. Yeah. Serial follow-ups. I think that's really important to kind of reiterate too. So, okay. So I think in terms of our listeners should have like a bit of a grasp on, you know, cause there hasn't been too many changes around that. I know that there's in the guidelines, more comments yeah. on age groups and cutoffs and volumes and that type of thing. So I think that's something that we can all refresh our knowledge about, but I think the area that was, I think very, um, I guess, intriguing for me was where the guidelines uh, kind of emphasized more talking about first of all, just like drug susceptible uh, TB. And Mm -hmm. so maybe we can talk a little bit about things that have changed in the pediatric world as well, but also in the adult world with um, LTBI. So TB infection management. Mm -hmm. Um, So maybe what's the most common regimen you can touch on that? Yeah. You know, and so um, that's actually a really great point you brought up. Um, I would say the most changes in terms of treatment in the in the standards is is around TB infection and even the name TB infection is different from latent TB infection Um, just because I think we 
I, you know, could talk about this longer, but um, again, TB infection is actually like a broad spectrum of things that we don't understand. So again, that concept itself is changing. Um, and so really, I mean, globally, um, I think lots of um, low and middle income countries are actually farther ahead than we are on because they have better drug access. Okay. Um, that's just simply because again, there's a bigger market. Um, but really what we're, um, the focus in um, children and adults is the rifamycin-based regimens. So anything with a RIF in it um, is better than uh, INH itself. And purely better, it's not that it's like, there's an efficacy or there's an efficacy difference is that in the real world, people are more likely to finish a shorter regimen and rifamycin-based regimens are definitely um, associated with less side effects than the uh, traditional kind of longer INH regimen. So people like that. Um, so that gets us into the two ones that are spoken about, which is the 3HP regimen. Mm-hmm. So that's um, the three months of high dose isoniazid and rifapentine. So once a week, 12 weeks. Okay. And then there's the 4R regimen, uh, which is um, four months of daily rifampin, which again, because it's daily, um, it's considered um, reasonable to have that done self-administered. So again, in resource limited settings, for whatever reason, there's uh, no DOT worker to monitor intermittent therapy. So therapy that's not every day. Uh, then if then 4R or daily rifampin is totally acceptable and has better completion rates than INH or 9-INH, nine months of isoniazid. 3-HP is where it's at. So if you're over the age of two, and obviously there's no drug interactions or anything like that. Um, Again, that's also a limitation of using rifamycin-based therapy is lots of drug-drug interactions. So you have to be careful with that. Um, but again, that's, you know, uh, 12 weeks of once a week is 12 doses total versus 4R is 120 doses. So yeah. completion is great, right. but rifapentine is not available everywhere yet. It's considered special access by Health Canada, but we've been lucky here in Manitoba. And I know up in Nunavut have had access to it. So I use it whenever it's appropriate. Yeah, that's good to hear. Perfect, Um, it's great. And then going into more, I guess, management of TB disease. Mm -hmm. um, So are there any recent updates um, in terms of management change? I know that there's definition changes or there's like addition of definitions for resistant TB. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would say the big thing to focus on um, because DRTB or drug resistant TB is very small proportion. And I would say that encourage um, anyone again, who's dealing with someone who has the possibility of having that or has that to reach out to their tertiary care center, because it's very complex management, side effect wise, prolonged therapy. Um, so again, I wouldn't do that on one's own. Yeah. Um, so in terms of drug susceptible TB, obviously, susceptible to all first line drugs, just isoniazid, rifampin, pyrazinamide, ethambutol. So really what is being spoken about mostly is um, this standard six month regimen, which again, um, hasn't really changed uh, that much. Mm -hmm. Um, So you have the two months of the four drugs. 
um, and then four months of two drugs. Um, and then again, what's being brought up is um, to being a little bit more, I guess, less paternalistic about DOT, so directly observed therapy. Mm-hmm. It's felt, I think, in some jurisdictions to be really restrictive to people and maybe even border, bordering on infringement of their rights. Um, and so, you know, I think people are, are trying to back away from that and, and think about it more as treatment support, actually. Um, so people that are going to, like, I know some families that want help, and I know some families that are just fine. So it has to be, obviously, a discussion and right. um, good follow-up to make sure that those who can, like, give them a bit more freedom. Um, and they do mention that daily therapy is preferred over intermittent. Um, there is some discussion about that, at least in the adult disease chapter. But what's, what's really exciting, um, and I forget if this was included or not, is there are studies out there, like clinical trials, looking at even shorter than six months now. So there's study 31, which is a rifapentine-based treatment that looked at four months of treatment. And then there's the SHINE trial in pediatrics that looked at four months as well for minimal disease. We're not there yet to prescribe it, you know, broadly, but it's, you know, people are working on this because again, we recognize that some people don't need six months, but we have to figure out who those are and what the right drugs are. Right. Yeah. No, that's fair. So I think, yeah, most of these, uh, um, kind of conventional treatments or standard treatments that we've used for a long, long time haven't changed um, much, but there um, definitely was mention about kind of our second line agents or agents when we are dealing with drug resistance. Now, obviously, the in terms of everything we talk about today, um, even if we are clinicians, it's not medical advice and it doesn't, um, you know, it's really for discussion purposes and knowledge purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, but touching on kind of what availability, so I mean, some of them are very available, like fluoroquinolones, for instance, like yeah. we all have access to those. Are there certain yeah. drugs that are a little bit more difficult to access for second line that we should be aware of that, you know, we yeah. should be thinking about ordering sooner? If we're yeah. Ready. So, you know, that gets really complicated. <laughs> it's, a, it's a complicated question here. And again, I, I don't have any, um, I've only had my mono resistance in my practice here. Okay. Um, meaning um, isoniazid or rifampin or pyrazinamide. So we're not getting into the second line agents there really. Um, But definitely at least here, um, things like delamidin and bedaquiline Mm -hmm. are special access only, but they're great drugs, they're oral. Um, It's unfortunate the availability is is what it is. Um, But I would say, in terms of choosing regimens, uh, go to WHO's great publication and update on what is considered good regimens based on the group the medications fall in. So that's group A, group B, group C. Right. And they do touch on that in the, in the standards. And I would also say, I don't know if we can readily accomplish this yet. It depends probably on jurisdiction and drug availability is we are trying to get away from aminoglycosides or injectable that's really being pushed globally is all oral regimens for drug resistant TB. Um, Cause again, aminoglycosides are super toxic and, mm. and, you know, people have hearing loss from them and um, 
you know, it's a really tragic thing. Um, so again, that's really being discouraged globally. I think in some circumstances, we do have to use them because they work mm-hmm. simply because we don't have access to all the other oral agents that other countries do. So, yeah. So talking about your practice then with like the monoresistant um, mm-hmm. type. So if you have a patient who's like isoniazid resistant, um, like obviously we just talked about the, the regimen having those four drugs, um, and then the duration. So what, how does that change kind of what? Yeah. So it changes agents and it changes like, so you can't use isoniazid then, and it also changes duration, but again, it depends on which drug you drop. Um, and again, um, they do talk about, I believe they talk about monoresistance and different treatment strategies, and that's definitely super widely available in the literature. Right. Um, and, you know, often you have to go to nine months, even if it's pulmonary, um, again, and um, also depends on how extensive the disease is as well, right. um, which again, more extensive, more prolonged, but um, yeah. uh, again, there's lots of great resources out there um, for monoresistant TB, like Curry, the Curry Center as well is a great resource from the US. Um, they do really great education. Um, out of San Francisco and lots of their stuff's available online. That's really good. And then in terms of, um, since you see TB and you manage these patients, what intervals are we looking at, for instance, like side effect monitoring and that type of thing? Maybe we can touch a little bit about that. Yeah. (laughs) I, so I'm not going to be prescriptive myself about that, but I would say follow the standards. And I would say, generally speaking, um, because I do a lot of remote medicine and things are simply just not available, I I can't do it. But um, I would say children, teenagers really don't need a lot of blood work, if any at all, after kind of the first bit, if they do not have side effects, it's a little bit different in adults with comorbidities on um, medications or hepatitis or whatever, um, where you're worried about um, liver toxicity, which is the big, big thing you worry about Mm -hmm. with three of the first line agents. So again, we really don't do a lot of blood work regularly, but I would say really it's important um, in terms of monitoring is just talking to the patient about side effects and talking to them about things like signs of early hepatitis, which again is the thing that's going to kill someone. Um, And again, knowing which agents to pull off and how to pull things off and how to reintroduce things is um, again, um, I, you know, touched on in lots of different resources. So um, I would say it's key to ask about side effects in early nausea, early vomiting that's persistent is hepatitis until proven otherwise and jaundice, you've missed the boat. So um, I always get a little bit, at least that was what was um, always emphasized to me when I was uh, in Cape Town is any nausea and any vomiting that's again, prolonged beyond 24 hours, you really need to think about hepatitis. So yeah, that's good. Yeah. Good point there for sure. All right. So yeah, I think we've touched on a lot of kind of the key points in the guideline. I did see that there was some mention of, I mean, you mentioned one of the trials, but future. So what is the future of TB prevention treatment in Canada? Is there something that is coming soon or anything that you'd 
like for our audience to kind of be aware of? Yeah. So I would say the couple of things we didn't touch on, which I kind of are really kind of quite big actually, um, which, you know, maybe those outside of our, our TV world don't, don't think they're that big, but you know, they're things we've done for a long time (laughs) that have changed. Um, So not uh, in the treatment for adult chapter, um, that there's no max to rifampin anymore. Um, Also, they make some BMI caveats in there. But again, we probably really underdose people on rifampin. And so 600 daily shouldn't be the cutoff. As to an absolute max, don't know, but they've been doing some really interesting things um, published that, you know, with people with TB meningitis or extensive disease, Mm -hmm. like pushing it way beyond 10 milligrams per kilogram and people really tolerating it fairly well um, based on, you know, monitoring blood levels and things like that. So that's a really big change. It's such an important drug. Um, So again, I would say, maybe that's actually more on the horizon. Maybe we'll see even greater dosing for that. And I would say the other thing that's really, I think was really important in this that people talked a lot about was de-isolation. And um, at least that's a hot topic I know in Alberta as well as in Manitoba Um, and not being so restrictive about keeping people um, in for two or three weeks. Um, Again, we know that's horrible for people to go through, especially if they're from a remote community and have to be brought somewhere else right. away from family members, you know, people who have jobs they need to go to. Yeah. Um, because again, there's lots of evidence out there that it went, once you're on a regimen that works for your TB, you're responding to it, you become not uh, non-infectious actually quite quickly. Um, And so there's really nice uh, review on that at the end of the standards. Um, I'm not going to make any recommendations on de-isolation because that's definitely very controversial. Yes. Um, But really (laughs) controversial. But um, I would say give it some, you know, amongst public health authorities out there, you know, consider consider being less restrictive about it based on smear status response and responding and taking appropriate therapy. So again, if right. you have to be drug, suscept- drug susceptible and on that therapy to respond, if you're someone with drug resistant TB, you know, this is not, this, not this, con- this conversation probably doesn't apply. Right. Um, but again, for drug susceptible TB, certainly I think we can yeah. look at that and hopefully make more progress on that in the future. Okay. And I would say on the horizon, maybe not for, like I would say in terms of like look out for shorter course regimens like as I mentioned before I think um definitely there's lots of work being done on it globally um so maybe maybe that's the future but we'll have to see certainly and again I think it's probably what's going to happen is you're going to probably stratify if I had to predict based on extent of disease will dictate length of treatment how we do that I don't know yet but maybe a more stratified approach is what's coming. So, yeah. And then currently, I guess one of the things I wanted to ask just for my personal knowledge as well, is, is there a database that's like, like, you know, nationally that we're following? Are there current like 
are there Canadian trials um, in TV that are currently on the way? Yeah, I'm not up on that. Well, I do know like Dick Menzies does a lot out of Montreal, does a lot. Um, his main interest is TB infections. So I imagine there's stuff going on there. He does a lot of global work as well. Okay. Um, I know there were some rifapentine, rifampin LCBI trials in the past. I don't know if there's anything ongoing now. Okay. Um, but yeah, lots of stuff done again, we're a low burden setting. So, mm. um, it's probably our patient population is probably not a good bang for your buck. So, but I know lots of these people are on India and, uh, other places in, in the world, um, I'm doing work on these types of things. Yeah, no, that's fair. All right. Perfect. So, uh, before we kind of let the audience go here too. Is there anything else key in the guidelines that we should be looking at as clinicians or key take-home points, something that you're dying to tell us that we should know for sure about TB? Ah, yeah. What, what, you know, if I had to say something, that's a good question. I actually hadn't like totally thought about it. uh, That question specifically. Yeah, so I would say, um, well, pediatric TBO always requires a high index of suspicion. Um, and again, your history is crucial and um, looking for signs outside of um, the classic adult signs are really what's key. And I would say for, um, you know, what I think a lot of people felt very strongly about is um, that TB is more than just TB disease um, and the families we see is more than just the medical treatment. There's a lot of um, other social issues that go along with it, Um, you know, housing and food insecurity and and that and things that have to be addressed. And, um, you know, all of us would love to have a social worker as well. All of us would have loved to have better access to all of these drugs being used in other places in the world. So uh, just an appeal (laughs) um, to anyone who's listening, um, more money, more availability. Um, And again, I think that's probably the state of TB in the world in general. Uh, It's a huge problem, um, maybe not as much in Canada, but still it requires a lot of time and a lot of money to, if we want to eliminate it. So yeah, yeah, I think that's what I that's that's my message <laughs> awesome no that's really great I mean it's always nice to hear from somebody who's kind of managing tv daily you know like even though a lot of us listeners are clinicians or pharmacists and um, nurses that are seeing tv you know there's yeah. there's many angles to this and yeah it's it's definitely just beyond the physician and the nurse yeah. there's people giving people meds in the community that do such grueling work and, and find patients who are hard to find. And, and, you know, public health, public health is also a key ally. I speak to them all the time. Um, and again, you know, implementing our programs and things like that. So it's a vast network of people just beyond me that, um, deal with the patients that I see. So, you know, very thankful again, as well, all the people who just really love to work in this, in this area. Um, and do so much. So for so, so very little actually. So I think it's also very helpful. I mean, we're really grateful for yourself as well. Like authors like you that have been able to kind of change up guidelines, current guidelines and updates for us, because Mm -hmm. 
obviously, if we're not seeing TB cases as often, we're not really familiar with the current practice. And yeah, exactly. It's all about, it's all about volume. Um, as I say, like you just like anything in infectious diseases, once you see it 10 times, you, it lives like that. Yeah. But you know what, you know, I, I also want to put a shout out out there. That's very nice and generous of you for the thanks. Um, but uh, to Ian Katai and Dick Menzies as well, they're out there in the world. Um, but we're very, I was very fortunate to be given this opportunity. Um, and it was in a collaborative effort. I learned so much and these are experts and wonderful people. So um, again, uh, you know, always phone a friend uh, if they know more than you, I do that for other things. So I'm always happy to provide advice as well. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. There's been multiple times when I've uh, been <laughs> be in touch with you. So it's great. No, it's Anytime. Great. I love to talk about it yeah. and other things too, but yeah. Yeah. So I think reiterating that the TB standards are, I, the reason I wanted to do this episode was just remind everyone that there are updated guidelines and the standards yeah. are updated. And so- again, and again, it's meant to be an accessible document, right? Um, it's not meant to be a super scientific thing. So again, that was the, the as I, I think we spoke about before, that was the main goal. Yeah. It landed up being much larger <laughs> because everything was so important to all of us. Right. Um, so I hope, I hope it's useful to people. I really do. Yeah. Um, and that people use it and, and give good care to these patients. Awesome. Yeah. And there's actually a lot of information about kind of drug resistant TB in there. I know some of our listeners had asked um, for, you know, some elaboration in there, but I think the guidelines actually after reviewing them yeah. um, are fairly straightforward there. And then remembering that reach out to your experts. That's yeah, I would say, yeah, you know, even in, in places like South Africa, um, I'm on a group talking about some pre- pregnancy and newborn stuff. Like, yeah, if you're out in the community, this is, you should not be managing that alone. It's complicated. Right. It depends what's available. And there's usually someone within your network that, that does this and you should reach out to them and not be afraid to. Um, I know, I know certainly that's at least the philosophy with the people I learned from. So again, you know, you're not alone <laughs> out there. Um, so again, and all of us, again, it's all, we, uh, TB is a team and a collaborative effort. So none of us minds, I think. So I would reach out. Awesome. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Rachel um, or Dr. Duello. Just Rachel. Yeah. (laughs) No problem. Thanks for having me and listening. Yeah, it was awesome. All right. Thanks. Take care. Thank you, Dr. Duello, for joining us. Have a topic suggestion? Email us at thecanadianbreakpoint at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at CA Breakpoint. See you again soon at the Canadian Breakpoint.